0: Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. This is Mark Hamilton, joined as I always am by my colleague, my co-worker, some might even say my friend, Mr. Mark (laughs) Daly, here for another round of Formula One news, just hours before cars in theory should start hitting the track at interlagos now it's been a busy day this isn't even the first real, podcast yep. that we've recorded today we were joined or we were joined we were invited to join tim herady earlier today on the racing pod so expect to see that in our stream sometime tomorrow is a bit of a bonus but my friend how the heck are you
1: not doing too bad and i was just thinking we're right in the middle of this very it's going to be the most weirdest bizarrest triple header in the history of formula 1 we're going mexico we're going brazil and then we're going to the middle east it's <laughs> usually they're a little bit more compact and a little bit more centralized than that but uh, before we get into it mark i just wanted to mention that uh, today is thursday november 11th that means it's remembrance day in canada veterans day in the usa so on behalf of us uh, both uh, thank you to all of our veterans Past and present, uh, especially those that have, uh, you know, done the hard work, done the hard thing, and especially those that have made the the ultimate sacrifice. And that goes for those that have uh, stood up and fought against oppression and tyranny anywhere. And a special shout out to those of you that are on active duty right now and uh, deployed. Uh, we owe you a debt of gratitude that we can uh, we can never fully repay. But um, important uh, to remember them all, all, one and all, this evening. All right, well, let's get into the show. Like you say, there's plenty of uh, news to talk about, plenty of things going on. As I just said, of course, we're in this uh, middle of this the the bizarrest triple header all like ever, and I mean, you could almost even tack coda onto that because we only had a week off in between Mexico and the USA. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I can't help but thinking if I was involved, I mean, I'd love to be. I mean, don't get me wrong, if that was my job, but I mean you know, I I can't help but think that sometimes some of the people that are in the F1 circus must wake up in the morning and wonder, what country am I in today?
0: (laughs) Oh, I completely agree. And you're right. It's it's not even so much that it's this bizarre continent-hopping triple header. It's, we, we start in Coda. we get a week off, but for everyone in Formula One, that's not really a week off because everyone <laughs> in the Formula One circus goes from Coda. they all fly back to the UK, they fly back to Western Europe, then they have to fly into Mexico, they have to bounce a couple of days later into Interlagos, and then they have to cross the ocean to get to Qatar at to Lusail, which is an entirely new country, an entirely new track to Formula One. So you're absolutely right, it's hopping continents, and time zones, I have sympathy. I think they all know what they signed up for and they're professionals. But that said, it's got to be a grind. And, yep. you know, we were talking earlier today with Tim about the fact that there were some logistical challenges getting some of the that's freight right. to, to Brazil. So that's going to compound and complicate and make the weekend even more complex. But the one point that you didn't mention was not only is it this bizarre, unique triple header, but the second race in this triple header is a sprint qualifying weekend.
1: Well, that's just it, right? And I mean, that's part of the problem uh, is that uh, the, the the fact that a lot of the teams had uh, cars and equipment and everything delayed leaving Mexico City earlier this week means that uh, it's going to be twice as busy to get uh, get everything done because this is not a normal Friday. There's actually like important, I mean, anytime they get track time is important, but we got sprint qualifying. I mean, it is going to be a super, super busy weekend. And I completely forgot, you know, 100%, uh, you know, transparency and honesty on my, my, on my behalf. We talked about it last Last week, and I completely forgot <laughs> that there was going to be sprint qualifying this weekend. But yeah, it's just uh, it it's sort of shaping up to be a bit of a weird end to the season on that uh, part because, you know, they were talking, I mean, are we still gonna have sprint qualifying at yes in in December? I mean, no. Oh, no, this'll be it. This'll be it. Yeah, well, I don't I don't think that a lot of people will be sad. This will be the last one. I mean, everybody seems to have really cooled on it, but yeah, it's it's really shaping up to to, to be a busy one. But let's talk about uh, some of the news at hand. Uh, this is one that uh, went uh, or broke uh, earlier today, but it's kind of been out there for a, a little bit in uh, varying degrees. And that is uh, Aston Martin uh, team principal Otmar Safnauer says that uh, the the reports that are linking with him to a shock move over to Alpine is nothing but uh, hooey. (laughs) There's nothing to it. That was the big breaking
0: story this morning, and I was very excited that we had something really meaty to talk about. But motorsport.com, autosport.com were both reporting that his move to Alpine was imminent and it was going to happen prior to the beginning of next season. And then All of a sudden, the Aston Martin PR machine, Otmar himself came forward. They had a full front press. They denied it. They denied it. They denied it. Alpine came out and denied it as well. And, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier today. I have some suspicions that maybe there's something afoot. But I think your perspective on this one is why defend and come out so aggressively if not for the fact that this isn't happening. What are your thoughts? Do you think there's do you think there's fire where there might be some smoke here?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I kind of keep going back and forth one way or another that no, there, there probably something isn't going on. But like you say, like where there's smoke, there's fire. I, I really don't know where I'm landing on this one. I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, perhaps Lauren Stroll drove a dump truck full of money up to Otmar's uh, house and the problem has been solved and uh, he'll get <laughs> on as, uh, and, as, as usual. But I mean, let's not forget that uh, that uh, Alpine and Renault, they have tons of... Not that money's the only motivator. I mean, the other thing that uh, that, that you have to consider is Martin Whitmarsh is back in Formula One. I mean, he was a McLaren for, what was it, 25, 30 years or something. Been out of the sport since uh, 2014 and now he's back at uh, Aston Martin. So, I mean, that potentially could cap where Otmar could grow within the Aston Martin organization. Now, having said that, I still think there's a lot more... Yeah, you know, Aston Martin. This this whole project is just getting underway. I mean, it only they only rebranded not even a year ago. I mean, this was uh, Racing Point and then formerly Force India. I think there's a lot more to go. Whereas Renault Alpine, I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot more that that team can do, but they've really struggled since they took over Lotus in what was it 2014? And you know, I, I really expected them and all the resources that they had as Renault Nissan and all that uh, you know that that might behind them. Uh, has really not materialized in my books.
0: Yeah, I, I very much agree. I think the timing of this was interesting. And maybe there's something to this, maybe there's not. But it was only a week ago that Alpine Formula One CEO Laurent Rossi had hinted and suggested very much that he was looking at a pretty significant management shakeup for next season for all the reasons that you just indicated. No, they which have is, to do it. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, this team has been, a, a, I don't want to say a failure, but I mean, they really didn't they didn't score a podium until last year, four mm-hmm. or five years into their return, their, their re-energized Formula One project. L- let's say it. They've been a failure. They're not competing for podiums. They're not competing for race wins. They're nowhere in the championship. They've been a disappointment. And to compound problems, they're no longer supplying power units to any other team. So mm-hmm. oftentimes for a team like Mercedes or Ferrari or Honda, you know what? you can supply engines to multiple teams. And Mercedes generates revenue and income from the fact that they're supplying power units to Aston Martin and to Williams. Well, Renault's in this precarious situation now where they're not even earning revenue from this massive, expensive project under which they've undertaken, which is developing a Formula One power unit. So for me, I think there might be something here, but you hinted at it, that one, you have the Alpine F1 CEO hinting at a major structural change, but also the fact that, Aston Martin themselves had a bit of a shock announcement. If you go back to the end of September, early October, when Lawrence Stroll introduced Martin Whitmarsh as a new partner within the Aston Martin family. And his role principally is to look after Aston Martin performance division. So it's understood that principally he's going to be overseeing the road car division in a bigger sense, but it was unclear. And he was very unclear when asked about what his role was going to be with the Formula One team. Is Otmar going to have total anonymity and complete decision-making abilities over this team? Or is Martin going to inject himself into the decision-making associated with this team? Because Otmar has had tremendous anonymity in terms of operating this team, both under the Red Force India guys, Mm -hmm. under the Racing Point guys, and now under the Aston Martin guys. And all of a sudden Otmar's got a new boss that he has to report into. He's not reporting directly into Lawrence Stroll anymore. And perhaps his vision is, I don't necessarily want to be a team principal for the rest of my career. That job is an absolute grind. You're flying to every Grand Prix. You're flying to the factory. You're flying around the globe to see junior drivers. You're whining and dining sponsors. You're doing the hospitality thing. All of those kind of pieces, being a team principal is a grind, and maybe his vision was, I would like to step away from that, but now all of a sudden there's a ceiling, there's a cap to what his growth opportunities are within Aston Martin, and maybe Alpine flew in, hey, we've got an opportunity for you, which to your point could then have been countered by Lawrence saying, hey, what What is what is it going to take? Here's a blank check. I want to keep the best people here and I don't want to disrupt my own mm-hmm. Formula One project.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we have to remember that, uh, that Lawrence Stroll has not become immensely successful in all the different areas of business that he's been active in uh, probably his entire life, right? I mean, I, I think Lawrence was... An entrepreneur when by the time he's about four years old, he just has that kind of vibe around him, right? (laughs) And successful at it too, Uh, might I add. Um, But uh, yeah, the way that I see it, I think that uh, this is maybe Lawrence, I wouldn't say stepping back, but I think this is Lawrence uh, appointing someone that he thinks is very capable to step in and take uh, maybe take some of the work off of his hands so he can still manage to run his empire mm -hmm. in, in other areas. And I, I mean, I think that people like Lauren Stroll, of course, they're incredibly involved and incredibly knowledgeable about what's happening in all the companies that they run. But I don't think that he can really immerse himself 24 7 into any one venture at any one time. And I see the, the appointment of Martin Whitmarsh very much in that uh, sort of spirit.
0: I've heard a couple of interviews with Lawrence Stroll in the last couple of months, and he's often asked specifically, how did you become so successful? And mm-hmm. he's he's frank enough and humble enough to admit, hey, there was a little bit of luck along the way, but overwhelmingly his point is, I surround myself with good people. Yep. I surround <clears> myself <throat> with the best people. And I don't think he's in a position now, given where that this project is, and given the fact that Otmar has been there since 2009, he's very much the backbone of that, that operation. I don't think he's going to let somebody like Otmar walk away unless that's something he wants to see happen. So I think you nailed it. I think there was an offer. I think they were close, and I suspect Lawrence probably just came in and kaboshed it with a
1: big check. Yeah, probably. And and that's uh, you raised such a good point. And the, the the first thing that I thought of is even though that uh, Zach Brown is not quite the same kind of like businessman, or I mean, he's very successful in his own right, of course. But I mean, as CEO of the McLaren Group, I mean, what has he done? And uh, you know, without Zach Brown, that team is not where they are today. They're not competing for. They're not competing for third in the constructors. They're not winning races like they did at Monza this year. I mean, Zach did very much what he needed to do. He let some people go and slowly but surely he appointed key people to key positions. And and, and look at the team now. They got a couple of really good drivers. They've got uh, Mercedes power. And look where they've gone. They've gone from the doldrums and uh, they've gotten right back to on the cusp of uh, of greatness again. I mean, uh, they they still got a little ways to go, but they, I think, have to be a role model for for all the teams that are saying, well, we're not Ferrari, we're not Red Bull, we're definitely not Mercedes. But I I think that uh, that that Zach Brown and McLaren say, hey, look, we were on death's door, but we got this thing turned around, and if we can do it, so can any of you. Although uh, <laughs> you know, it took a lot of financial ninja work to get that done, and uh, but that's a completely uh, different uh, story. Okay, let's. I want to talk about this one uh, really quickly uh, before we go into the break, but it does uh, bear mentioning after been almost a decade not quite a decade formula one is finally embracing the fact that they have v6 turbo hybrid power and they're boasting about it i mean this is something that they should have really done a lot sooner Although I think that maybe the world or just in general, people weren't ready for it. I think, you know, the the technology is absolutely marvelous. But I think in this day and age, what with uh, more people, I think, uh, focused on the issues of uh, global climate change and environmental issues, I think that this message resonates a little bit more. And I think Formula One, they get a fair amount of scrutiny and rightly uh, rightly so as being a somewhat, um, how do you want to call it? Uh, An opulent or extravagant racing series, burning a lot of fuel, leaving a massive carbon footprint and things like that. And, you know, which is true to a, to a certain and uh, large degree, but I think that they need to flex on this because, you know, these uh, are you know, incredibly efficient, wonderful pieces of uh, technology. And um, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of surprised that they haven't boasted about this uh, sooner or pr- promoted it. But uh, at the same time, I am. I am and I am not. I think that the, the, the timing just wasn't right before now.
0: Before I go on my very long rant, I will concede, I recognized what you were suggesting a few minutes ago, which is Hamilton, let's quickly touch on this topic, because <laughs> otherwise you're going to ramble for 20 minutes, but I totally agree. Oh, I know you love this,
1: uh, this subject a lot.
0: <laughs> oh, I do, But and I loved your term as well, to flex. Like I, I think Formula One really needs to bring more shine and exposure to maybe the core asset of the racing division, which is this absolutely... Phenomenally complex and energy efficient power unit. Like we're talking about a 1.6 liter V6 turbo double hybrid system with thermal efficiency that is better than possibly anything else on the planet. These tight, compact packages are simply a phenomenon of engineering. And I think they're really important for a couple of reasons. Because one, Formula One is generating a tremendous amount of energy and power out of a tiny, tiny internal combustion engine again a 1.6 liter v6 they're using forced induction through an incredibly efficient and powerful turbocharger and they have not one but two hybrid systems they have a hybrid system capturing energy from the exhaust gases and they have a separate hybrid system capturing energy from braking at the rear all of which is pumped into a battery which is then tapped into to generate even more power when they're driving so these cars are a phenomenon it's crazy i just think it's incredibly exciting that Formula One now recognizes that, holy crap, we've had this in our cars the whole time. This is probably something that we should be talking about and showing off. So it sounds like Liberty's vision at this point is they want to put this turbo hybrid front and center when it comes to marketing the brand and advertising the brand that, hey, we have something cool. And it's not just cool from a technical perspective, but it's really cool in the sense that, hey, we are very cognizant of the global environmental crisis, that we are in a period of dramatic climate change, but that we're doing something. We're not sitting back on our laurels and rocking a naturally aspirated V8 with a four liters of displacement, that we're doing something. And furthermore, that they want to evolve this concept and this formula into something that will eventually be very similar, minus the MGU-H when we go into 2026, but that they ultimately want it to be consuming e-fuels and synthetic fuels fuels that are developed based on carbon that's pulled out of the atmosphere like I think this is very cool and it's something they should be very proud of and we talk a lot about road relevancy in Formula One and the fact that what we see in Formula One cars should have some sort of linkage to road cars maybe not today but maybe in five years when there's some trickle-down technology but I also think that as much as the world's moving towards electric vehicles pure EVs I think there's very much a real segment of road car users that me like me that would be more compelled to purchase a plug-in hybrid. So a car that has a dedicated EV motor, but mm-hmm. also has a small, compact, efficient internal combustion engine. So you have that flexibility of having a gas tank and not having to worry about range. I think there's a future where all those things come together. And Ross bronze talked about this a lot. He doesn't necessarily see a world where everything is powered by an electric engine and that there's always going to be some room for internal combustion engines, but that those combustion engines will be fueled by synthetic fuels and e-fuel. So that's... That's my rant. I kept it as compact as I could
1: <laughs> to keep the sponsors happy. Well done. So, And on that note, let's take a quick break and we'll come back on the other side and still plenty of things to talk about. And first up will be Alpha finally saying that they're going to confirm their driver lineup next week. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. All right, well, welcome back to the show. And yes, Alfa Romeo boss Frederick Vasseur has finally confirmed who will drive alongside Valtteri Bottas, which, you know, I still can't get my my, my head around uh, completely that Valtteri is uh, going to be there next year, but... Uh, Anyways, they will be announcing that second driver next week. Sounds very much like Antonio Giovinazzi is on his way out of uh, Alpha for next year. Sounds like it's either going to be, was it Guan Yu Zhu or uh, Oscar Piastri, the F2 drivers. Sounds like it's going to be one of the two of them. And I think this is going to be exciting. I think it's going to be a great uh, driver lineup. You get like an experienced, proven quantity in Valtteri Bottas. that has been there, won races, helped win championships and uh, everything. And and still at a pretty decent age um, to be racing competitively in Formula One. As much as I love Kimi Raikkonen, I mean he's well past his best before date, and I think that uh, you know a fresh driver lineup is one of the things that will really help uh, this team uh, next year. Would have been uh, very interesting to see what would have happened uh, had that uh, that deal with Andretti Autosport uh, gone through, but uh, you know that's that's not a thing now. It's not it didn't happen, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. One of the big things is. uh, the zoo comes along, he's going to bring in like, was it $25, $30 million of sponsorship yeah. money, which will totally help uh, this team. So it just, uh, it, it'll be exciting to see what the what the, what the final announcement is. So uh, what's your thoughts on that?
0: I completely agree. And I love to see Alfa Romeo, Sauber, Frederick Vassour. I love to see them starting to assert some independence. And mm-hmm. I think that there was very much this sense or this perception over the course of the last three or four years that they were very much running as not necessarily even Ferrari's B team, but functioning maybe as their C team. And it was clear that I believe that at one point the Kimi, Kimi deal, signing Kimi after his departure from Ferrari was very much that, hey, we've got this former world champion. He's going to be really easy to sell sponsors. I think in hindsight, it was probably more doing a solid for Ferrari because they wanted to – they wanted to preserve that linkage to Kimi, who had helped him win a world championship going back to 2007. Sure. Um, I think this is very much them starting to assert their independence that, hey, look, we want to be – fully in control of who's going to be driving our cars. We want to be fully in control of our destiny as a team. And I think that this driver decision is very much a byproduct of that. And I think it is going to be Zhu. I'm excited. I think it's fantastic for the sport. I think it's great for Sauber. Putting aside the the financial benefits of signing him, because to your point, it's going to bring with it $25 or $30 million worth of funding annually from, from China. But I think it's very cool that we're going to have our first Chinese driver in Formula one. And I think that helps to enrich and and build on the fan base in that country. And of course, we didn't go to China last year. We didn't go this year. We're probably not going to go next year, but we should be back for 2023, which is fantastic because I think that's a really important market for Mm -hmm. formula one, but I like to see them asserting this independence. And you're right. I don't think this deal happens if the Andretti Motorsport piece goes through because I think they had their eyes very much on somebody else. And I think the only reason that this announcement hadn't happened until now is because the Andretti Motorsport group or Autosport group was absolutely – Absolutely crystal clear that, hey, if we're in the process of buying Sauber or at least buying 80% of it in a controlling interest, we want to be able to decide who's going to be driving this car. And if they're buying Sauber, if they're buying into Formula One, it's because Mm -hmm. obviously they want to have some some degree of American – flavor and they probably would have wanted to have a us-based driver a us-born driver on that team but i love the assertiveness i think this is fantastic i hope it's you and i can't wait because i agree with you kimmy being on the grid today serves no purpose serves no value to the team he's not competitive he's certainly on the the i would say the unproductive side of a 40 and i would love (laughs) to see more young drivers in this sport
1: yeah, totally. You know, I was just kind of thinking uh, too when you were just uh, talking about them, the the assertiveness of kind of going their own way rather than letting Ferrari dictate or really heavily influence uh, what decision they make. And we, we saw that earlier this year with Williams going off script, Absolutely. if you want to call it that, and going with Alex Albon rather than the the expected choice of uh, putting in Nick DeFries, who's a, a Mercedes driver. Obviously they have Mercedes power units and that just kind of seemed like a bit of a done deal. And I, I, I couldn't help but uh, thinking To myself and asking myself if uh, this trend continues, what very much seemed at one point in the past year or so that a lot of these smaller teams might just become de facto B teams or almost uh, junior teams for for the big, uh, you know, the Mercedes, the Ferraris, and Red Bulls uh, of the world. Uh, I I just. I think that that's just is not going to happen now with with the exception of uh, Alpha Tauri and Red Bull where that is a legit B team and a development team for the main uh, you know RBR right but the these others yeah go ahead sorry jump in
0: just hit on something that I'd never thought about until this moment, and you you suddenly awoken a thought of, within me, but it's that in this new world where there's cost certainty and there's a cost cap, mm-hmm. all of these teams are all of a <clears throat> sudden in this position where, hey, previously we were dependent on the funding and the cash that these bigger teams were funneling to us. Yes. All of a sudden, wait a minute, if we're now playing on an equal playing field and we all have to adhere to this $135 million cap, I don't need to rely on funding for Ferrari. I can scrape together $135 million a year. So maybe part of this assertiveness, and I I love what you said about Williams too, kind of flipping the script on that driver decision. Maybe these teams have got this newfound sense of confidence because you know what, you may supply us with engines, which is fine. That's a contract. But in terms of all of this other stuff, you dictating who's going to be in our cars and you influencing some of our more strategic decisions, like maybe that's all kind of out the window now because all of a sudden there's this parity on the playing field, which is, I guess what the cost cap was designed to do all along.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, totally. I mean, uh, maybe this is one of these unintended, uh, unexpected consequences or results that we're seeing that uh, that that we just never thought of before. And I mean, you, you raise a really, really great point that if the you know all these teams can cobble together enough uh, money to do it, and say you get like a, a driver like Guan Zhu who comes in with twenty-five or thirty million dollars of sponsorship, you know, that's that's a good chunk of uh, coin. But you know, that uh, you know, before you even get going, so it really is a, a completely different landscape. And ultimately, who, who knows? how it'll play out i mean the the big teams will always i think uh will always attract the top talent both on and off for the sure. tracks. you know i mean that's just the, the the way of the world right i mean the big successful teams in any, any sport are always the ones that people always you know everybody loves a winner right but you know having um you know having said that that if you don't get to go to work for ferrari or mercedes i'm sure you would still be thrilled you know if you're one of those people that are qualified to work in formula one sure that might not be your 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 first pick, but you'd still have a hell of an interesting and rewarding career working for someone else. So not that uh, I'm trying to put a negative uh, spin on that. But uh, sort of sticking with uh, these uh, young drivers and uh, a bit of a related note, uh, George Russell apparently is going to start his Mercedes career right after the Abu Dhabi uh, Grand Prix in December, and he'll uh, join the Silver Arrows uh, in the postseason tire test. Uh, So George obviously very eager to get down to work with with his uh, with his well, not really his new boss, but <laughs> I mean, considering he already is a Mercedes driver. But this is an interesting one. I mean, what, could we ever consider George a like an an out and out hundred percent Williams driver? Was he just kind of like loaned to them over the past? Was it three years now?
0: Yeah, that's the way I always saw. it, is very much, and I know it's a, a foreign concept to our, a lot of our American based and even our Canadian based listeners, this concept of loaning out talent. We see it in club football in Europe all the time, but – that was always the way I, I saw it was that hey, he's a Mercedes driver, he's from the Mercedes Academy. He was always destined to drive for that team, but he was basically on loan to Williams. And this goes right back to what I was saying a couple of minutes ago, which is Williams was so financially dependent on the big boys at Mercedes in terms of supplying power units and supplying technical entities or expertise expertise, expertise <laughs> that they they weren't really in a position where they had the autonomy to make a driver decision. So all Ultimately, you know, Mercedes was able to get one of their drivers, one of their academy drivers into the Williams car and ultimately probably was the right thing for them because he was a supremely talented driver. But ultimately, they didn't have a choice. Now, this offseason where Mercedes were very much trying to flex on them and put Nick DeVries into the car, they stepped back and flipped the script, as you so eloquently said a couple minutes ago, and opted for Alex Albon from the Red Bull Academy. But yeah, for me, he was always a Mercedes driver that was effectively on loan. And I Mm -hmm. always thought that was crystal clear because even if Mercedes was was clear that he wasn't going to have a seat with them, I don't think he was ever going to stay with Williams, not unless they dramatically improve their form over the course of his three-year tenure. But this is exciting. And I'm not surprised that Mercedes want to get him as soon as possible. But I also think that just as much as Mercedes wants to get him into their garage, into their car, and around their teams, I think Williams wants to move on from him because they need to get Alex Albon into their garage and into their team. Because, you know, we we talk about George Russell having been on loan to Williams. Well, you know, he's been around Mercedes, he's done test driving, he's been in the simulator, he's driven Mm -hmm. the Mercedes car in a a Grand Prix, he's familiar with the power unit, he's familiar with the gearboxes because he's been rocking those in his Williams cars. I think Williams is desperate to get alex albon into their garage right now because he has no experience with the williams car he has no experience with the gearbox he has no experience with that mercedes power unit they need to get him in now so i think williams hey you know what george russell he's yours go i think where it's going to get a little bit stickier is how quickly is red bull going to be willing to give up alex albon who's under contract through the end of december this year because williams needs him around that team immediately, as soon as possible. They would take him today if they could, because they need to start indoctrinating him into the Williams program.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I don't see Williams being awkward about uh, letting George uh, free of his obligations at the, you know, I, I see that uh, working you know, well for them, but I, I just don't see... The, the the favor being returned by Red Bull I I mean if they not do I, but I just I'm not expecting it perhaps it'll work out that uh, that Alex will get there sooner than um, you know than maybe a lot of us expect and as soon as uh, Williams would like because like you say I mean he's going to be the guy he's going to be the, the number one uh, driver in that team and no disrespect to Nicky but you know Alex has proven what he can do in Formula One and, uh, you know, I think that they've, could we go as far as saying that Williams is taking a risk on Alex Albon? Sort of, kind of, but, but not really. I mean, he comes with an impressive bra- background. I know that his uh, tenure at Red Bull was a, a little bit shaky and... I think that uh, perhaps maybe they dumped him a little bit uh, too soon. I mean, Checo is, ultimately, he started to turn it around. I mean, his last several races, you know, the last third of the season was better than the first half of the season, I I guess, uh, since the summer break, at least. Um, But, you know, I mean, Alex you know on the flip side i mean he does have something to prove i mean uh, you know he 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 went into red bull showing that uh, that there was uh, something there you know when he sort of came in and and you know sort of halfway through the year replacing gasly and then when he gets the the, the full season you know to, with that uh, that opportunity to to do the most that he can it didn't work out <laughs> quite uh, in his favor so here he is again on the sidelines coach yuki sonoda and uh, you know doing all the simulator work for red Red Bull, you just got to think that this guy's aching and dying to get back into uh, into a real car, get out there, put some real miles on the track, and start doing that. So I, I'm sure the feeling is mutual. As much as Williams is eager to get him into the, the the factory, get him into the car at Grove, I think that Alex is probably going to that's he's going to be reciprocating that uh, that desire. It's just uh, you know what is Mister Red Bull going to do and uh, prolong that or not? All right, well, let's uh, park it there temporarily. We're going to take a, a quick break. Just uh, checking out the, uh, the the live stream. Uh, a couple of things. Craig Day is just uh, mentioning. He said, "Repiastri could the paddock handle two Australians?" I don't know, but it'd be fun to watch. <laughs> Steve Williams uh, uh, countered to, to say, "Can't be too uh, too many Australians." Double podium. Shuey's winky face. Steve also asking, uh, "Can can you guys just tell me who's going to win this championship?" The tension is killing me, and we will answer that question right after this very short break from our sponsors. So don't go away.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
1: All right, well, welcome back to the show. And well, I'm afraid that was a bit of a psych. Uh, <laughs> we will not tell you who's going to win this championship because we ourselves don't know it. Our know, know it quite yet. We have uh, probably some ideas, but just like the rest of you, we're we're prepared to sit here and wait it out and watch it uh, for the over the course of the next uh, four races. And uh, it's really shaping up uh, to be an epic finish to what's been an absolutely uh, epic season. So far, before we uh, dive into our preview of the race, and we're going to open up the the, the mailbag, um, I wanted just to to toss this to you. And before we do that, I'm going to hit the MotoGP jingle here, because this has been a while since we've done that. And I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart. You're Mr. Moto GP. And well, let's just say that Valentino Rossi is hanging up the helmet and driving gloves. And uh, I know that you've got some, some thoughts and some, uh, some things to say about that.
0: Heartbreak, tears. Pain. Those were all the things I felt while creating that jingle that I spent two weeks making licensed <laughs> music for and never use because we never do MotoGP Corner. But that is entirely my fault. But today, and I didn't know we were doing this segment, so this is purely off the cuff. Perhaps the greatest, I would say, championship formula level motorcycle racer of all time is hanging up his boots. He's hanging up his glove. He's going to put his beautiful fluorescent yellow helmets on. On the peg, he is done. And he does so after possibly the most sterling career of any motorcycle racer of all time. So let me put some of this into perspective. Across MotoGP and MotoGP2, which is sort of the feeder series that leads into Formula One, he has nine world championships. He has 65 poles. He has 96 fastest laps. He has 235 podiums. He has 115 wins in 431 races. That means he has won one quarter of every race he has started. He has scored a podium in more than 50% of every race that he has competed in. He entered MotoGP way back in two. 2002, right around the time that Kimi and, of course, Fernando joined the sport. He scored a championship in his first season as a rookie in 2002 with Hondo. He repeated in 2003. And then on a massive shock move, he switched to Yamaha in 2003. He scored a championship with Yamaha that year, 2004. He repeated in 2005. He finished second in 2006, third in 2007. And then in 2008 and 2009, he won the championship before slipping to third in 2010. He had a short-term, two-year, ill-fated move to Ducati. He went back to Yamaha where he finished second in 2014, 15, and 16 against arch rivals Mark Marquez in 14 and 16 Mm -hmm. and Jorge Lorenzo, his teammate in 2015. And what I would would argue was probably one of the most bitter championship duels of all time. Even more so I would say than Nico and Lewis in 2016. He leaves as the winningest driver of all time with those 7 chips at the premier level. He brought, I would say, a transcendent and important level of exposure to the sport. I'm all about, you know what, identifying an athlete as somebody that transcends the sport and brings a, an appeal and awareness that wouldn't otherwise be there. He was absolutely the most transcendent star the sport has ever seen. He made MotoGP motorcycle racing must watch motorsports for the better part of a decade and a half. He has a fantastic personality energy, charisma, he's fantastic, possibly the greatest export of Italian motorsports ever, (laughs) and the reason that he's so relevant in this conversation, and probably a lot of our listeners, especially those in the live stream right now, are wondering is, why is he going on and on about a MotoGP racer? Well, one, we want to give credit where credit's due, but the other really important thing is that between 2004 and 2010, he did seven tests with Ferrari and Formula One. In fact, towards the end of that run, he was lapping less than a second a lap slower than Michael Schumacher. It's been widely speculated. In fact, Valentino Rossi himself said there was an offer from Ferrari to move to Formula One, and the only reason he didn't accept it was because he wanted to jump directly into a full-time seat with Ferrari, and Ferrari wanted to start him at one of their customer teams before graduating him Mm. to the Ferrari team. He ultimately stayed a a good move because he continued to win championships but this was a guy who was so skilled so talented that he had the ability to compete at both the highest levels of motorsport in motorcycle racing and in open reel racing he passed on the opportunity because he didn't think it was the right fit but he could absolutely have competed in formula one given the performances that he had on the track in those Scudiera ferrari
1: tests you know, it's a, a, amazing when you look at those stats and all the things that he did and the fact that he tested with Ferrari and he did so well over those uh, the, all those years and all those tests and he got so close to Schumacher's times it just can't help uh, but but ask uh, begs that question what if what if uh, you know ferrari did the you know didn't try i wouldn't say they tried to do the dirty on him but had they actually given him an offer to drive for the scuderia rather than one of one of their customer teams at that time what could that guy have done in in formula 1 i mean of course we'll never know but until you know we can solve quantum physics and we can go check out the you know some bizarre <laughs> parallel universe where that actually happened it's uh, just just an amazing uh, amazing story and yeah sad to see him retire but again all good stories all good things uh, come to an end and this podcast is not one of them not just yet anyway so before we dive into the mailbag let's um, talk about the race itself So we're going to Interlagos at Brazil, Autodromo Jorge Carlos Pace, or Pache, I'm not sure how to say that, pardon me, looking good for Sunday afternoon, about 2 p.m. We're looking at about uh, 23 degrees Celsius, about 74 degrees Fahrenheit, looks like it's going to be a mix of sun and cloud in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Nineteen points separating Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. Lewis challenging, obviously. He's got a bit of work to to do, to catch up with uh, Max. But if there's anybody that uh, that is capable to do so, that would be uh, Lewis Hamilton. And you know, I've, I've been thinking about this over the past uh, couple of days. Max, he's got a bit of a buffer. He's got a bit of a, a a bit of room. He doesn't have quite have all the insurance that he wants. And I think that Max is going. And I don't think Max is going to ease off. I think that he's going to push as much as he needs to over the last uh, four races to really uh, conceal this uh, this championship. I mean, it can still go either way. Let's be completely honest about this. Uh, just because Max is leading right now, I mean, there's still plenty of points up for grabs over the next four races. And I'm saying four. I'm still not 100% convinced that uh, that Saudi is going to happen. I mean, there sounds like there's going to be a lot of work to, to, to do before we get to Jeddah in a couple of weeks' time. I have no doubt that the pit facilities and the track will be ready. I'm, I'm hoping, but uh, we'll, we'll see. And uh, if that doesn't go off, do they cancel it? Do they maybe go to Bahrain, which is also in the region? There's a lot of things, uh, obviously, in play there. But on the basis, on the fact that we might... We're going with a four race finale to this season, plenty and plenty of uh, points up for grabs. I think that Max is going to come out flying this weekend because you know this is a circuit that's at altitude, as we saw in Mexico last week. This favors the uh, the, the the Honda. This favors the Red Bull. And then we go to the three final races of the year, in the Middle East at street level, or sorry at uh, at uh, at sea level street tracks. Uh, some of them all favoring uh, Mercedes, all power tracks. And, um, you know, lots of things uh, going on, but I think that that Max is going to try and seal the deal here this weekend. And well, maybe he doesn't seal the deal, but maybe he puts it to a point that it's just becoming too far of a gap with too few races for, for Lewis to try and catch up after this weekend. What do you think, Mark?
0: yeah i think that's a really great summary of what we can expect going into this race weekend but like steve says in the chat associated with our live stream right now i'm excited for this final run of races but i think mercedes is going to be fighting an uphill battle at this track not least of which is because there's 41 meters of elevation change throughout this very very short and very i would say challenging exciting exciting track but Mm -hmm. i think the elevation and i think the The momentum that Red Bull's carrying right now suggests that this could be a very good weekend for them. And I think for Mercedes, it's not about, hey, let's try and score a race victory or take a double podium. It's more about damage mitigation because we go into the final three races where Mercedes, in theory, on paper, technically should perform much better than they do at these two races. Obviously, I think there was expectations going into Coda, which maybe weren't met from a Mercedes perspective, having come out of a run of races where they did look very good and Red mm-hmm. Bull looked a little bit shaky, but Red Bull obviously looked fantastic at Coda. Red Bull looked phenomenal at, at uh, Mexico City. And ultimately, if it was a couple of laps longer the race, perhaps they score a one-two on that podium and all of a sudden Lewis is that much farther behind in the championship. I think this is going to be a tough weekend for Mercedes, but maybe the one thing that does play into the their favor because the altitude won't, the layout of the track won't. I think one of the things that could play into their favor is that it's going to be a compressed, complex complicated weekend. We're going into Friday. The teams are scrambling to get the cars on the track. We have free practice one tomorrow. Nobody's seen this track in two years because we didn't come last year. That's right. We have qualifying tomorrow afternoon. So just in terms of having a regime and just in terms of having that muscle memory, it's a very unusual Friday because all of a sudden, Friday's a high-pressure situation because you desperately need to qualify well for Saturday. And Saturday, we have free practice three in the morning, and we have sprint qualifying. And all of a sudden, you're in a session which is do I drive with a tremendous amount of aggression because I need to score a ton of points and qualify well for the Grand Prix on Sunday or do I take a more relaxed approach and try to not damage the car or compromise the integrity of the power unit so I think it's going to be a challenging weekend for everyone maybe there's an opening for Mercedes because maybe Red Bull has a little bit of bad luck and of course I wouldn't wish that on them but maybe they have a little bit of bad luck because they have seen tremendous amounts of reliability this year maybe not good luck when you consider what happened at Silverstone and what happened at Monza, but they've had really good luck in terms of reliability. The other question going into this race weekend is, as we kind of tee this up, everything this year has been about Max versus Lewis and Mercedes versus Red Bull, but The sense is lewis probably needs to swap out that power unit again mm-hmm. and if he's going to do it this year you probably need to do it at this race because i believe and i don't know if it's going to play out this way but i have to believe that mercedes is going to look a lot better when we get to LaSalle and when we get to jeddah and when we get back to yas Marita. one those tracks are at sea level two at least two of them are very much high power high speed tracks with some major straights which in theory should play well to the mercedes strengths so i think this weekend's all about damage mitigation and if you can score if Lewis can score a second on the podium that's fantastic if he can be third well that's good as long as Valtteri's in the top five because it's no longer simply about chasing that world drivers championship it's because Bottas performs so poorly in Mexico City you need to score as many constructors points as possible because now all of a sudden the constructors title is on the line so I like this track we've seen some phenomenal races there 2008 was was fantastic of course 2012 was great 2019 was a banger when of course max won his first win in brazil i'm looking forward to this race weekend but i think it could be a little bit unpredictable
1: yeah it's interesting too i mean if you go back to the start of the turbo hybrid era in uh, 2014 nico wins two lewis wins in 2016 seb 17 lewis again in 18 that should have been the race that max should have won but you know he got tangled up uh, with esteban Ocon. And there was that uh, RG bargy and pushing and shoving in the pits afterwards. And then he comes back and wins it in, in 2019. So, I mean, in, in more recent times, I mean, it's been a little bit uh, back and forth. I mean, in 2014, 15, and 16, nobody was coming within a country mile of uh, Mercedes. 17 and 18, Ferrari was a little bit uh, more you know, I wouldn't say on par with Mercedes, but, uh, they were definitely challenging uh, here and there, but Max is, he's, he's driven well here. When was he had that phenomenal outing in the, in the rain? Was it 16? Was it 17 when, when it rained so hard and they stopped the race for a, for a time? Was that 2016? I mean, he was passing people all over the place in places that, that, that he shouldn't have done. Yeah, I, I think it was 16 because I remember making a ridiculous, uh, overtake on, uh, Nico Rosberg on a part of the track that he had no business doing so in in, in all that torrential uh, downpour, so I, I think that this this does favor Max. I mean, the the one thing that's it, like I say, it's it's setting up to be a dry race. I mean, certainly we've seen it this uh, you know this circuit uh, before that we've had plenty of rain, but certainly not this uh, the, this weekend. Anyways, some quick stats on the on the on the track itself. It's four point three one kilometers or two point six eight miles. Total race length is three hundred and five point eight eight kilometers or one hundred ninety point zero six miles. Seventy one laps. The podium. In 2019 was Verstappen, uh, Pierre Gasly, and Carlos Sainz. So that was uh, Verstappen in the Red Bull. Gasly and the, the then Toro Rosso and Carlos Sainz was driving for McLaren. So just looking at the tires that uh, that uh, Pirelli are bringing, it's the mid-range compounds. Again, C2 hard, C3 mediums, and C3, sorry, C4 softs. Oh, and just uh, some of the stats here again fastest lap in 2019 was by Valtteri Bottas. His fastest lap in 19 was a 110.698. And VB77 also holds the outright lap track record as a 110.540, which he set in the Mercedes W09 back in 2018. And very much, I think that this has got to be uh, one that uh, favors Red Bull this weekend. And Ultimately, whether Lewis needs to change out that ice, we'll wait and see. You know, it's it's something that he at least last weekend he was saying that he could maybe uh, put off and uh, maybe might not, might not have to do. But again, like you say, if he if he's going to have to take this hit, take the penalty, and if anybody can recover from a five pace uh, grid penalty, it's going to be uh, Lewis Hamilton. Uh, you know, I mean, he still has, he's still Lewis Hamilton, he still has a Mercedes and that five grid place deficit could be overcome over the course of 71 laps. And again, you know, one of the things that could be disastrous for Lewis is finishing out of the points or a DNF or, you know, on the flip side, you know, that, that would obviously have massive implications, not for just for his championship bid, but also for the constructors. Because I mean, that gap that they'd opened up over Red Bull has narrowed right back down. What, what is, the, the gap between them now three five points or something like that it's it, it's it's almost nothing I mean with the amount of points that these drivers are scoring between uh, both of those teams that that could easily swing one way or another depending uh, what, what what happens but yeah I mean certainly if uh, Lewis had a disastrous weekend a DNF or finishing out of the points could uh, really seal the deal for for Max Verstappen and, and Max he's got a bit of a cushion I mean if he has a bad afternoon you know this weekend or next it's not necessarily the, the, um, you know, his season... Over and done. I mean, he's, you know, it would certainly make things a little bit more difficult, but I think there's a lot more pressure on Lewis at the moment. But this is a guy seven-time world champion. He's been in this position before. He's come from behind to, to, to win races, come from behind to win championships. Hasn't always worked out, but he's he's been in the position before. And if anybody, you know, if, if there's one driver you didn't want to have chasing you down for a championship, if you're Max Verstappen, you wouldn't want that guy to be Lewis Hamilton, but it is. And for the rest of us, that means it should be one exciting and epic finish to the 2021 World Championship.
0: The margin for error this weekend, I think obviously Mercedes has none. If they want to win a if they want to win the constructors title, they have to have two really rich points finishes from both of their drivers. And if Lewis wants to win, he needs to finish first or second this race weekend. I don't even think third is going to cut it. They need to finish top two this weekend or Lewis needs to finish top two and they need to have a lot of luck along the rest of the way. And that said, even even if Max does DNF. I don't think that's game over for him. He DNFs. Let's say Lewis wins. Well, all of a sudden, the championship swings. But now, all of a sudden, Lewis is only six points up, which is a razor-thin margin with three races left. So, you know, Max is in a position where the pressure's off a little bit. They could afford to have one bad Grand Prix between here and the finale at at Yas Marina. Lewis, Mercedes, they can't afford, you know— Valtry really put, I get so frustrated thinking about this, but (laughs) Valtry really put them in a compromising position with that. Early breaking that bad start in Mexico City. You know it wasn't so much just the fact that he braked early and he left the door wide open for Max Verstappen and that overtake by Max Verstappen, mwah, that was beautiful. That was daring. That was brave. That was beautifully executed. And he deserves all the credit for it. But Valtteri's early breaking compromised his race because it put sure. him in traffic, and of course he was then clipped. He was spun, and he doesn't score any meaningful championship points. It was well, he didn't score any championship points really the only thing he did of value from that point onwards was steal the one point from max which would have been fastest lap that was the only thing he contributed so he really put them in a tough position but i think it's going to be a very 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 strong weekend for Red Bull. Now, again, anything can happen. This is gonna be a crazy weekend. We don't know what freight's there, we don't know what freight isn't there. We've got qualifying tomorrow. We've got a sprint race on Saturday, and then of course we have the Grand Prix on Sunday. It's gonna be a crazy weekend and there's a lot of points available. If I'm Max Verstappen, if I'm Lewis, I could score twenty-five points from the win, a point from fastest lap, and three points from the sprint. So I could score twenty nine points this weekend if everything goes well. Well, I just, I don't think Mercedes is going to have the pace of the Red Bulls. They need to do damage mitigation and they need to be darn well teed up for the sale, which again is a track that none of them have raced a Formula One car on. So it's going to be a crazy seven or eight days.
1: Totally. Before we go into our last break, uh, and when we jump into the mailbag on the other side, Mark, I just wanted to get your take on this. Now, Max said if he wins the World Championship, he will absolutely rock number one on his car next year. Your thoughts on this? Arrogance, or is this uh, rightly reviving uh, a treasured and time-honored Formula One tradition?
0: So full disclosure, I didn't even know this was a thing until oh, really? somebody posted it. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a thing. I saw the story. I'm just like, well, that's a weird question to ask a driver. And then I saw some memes earlier today. I think one of them was from one of our listeners, Jason. And it was like, I was this many days old when I learned that this was a thing. I literally learned that this was a thing today. So maybe, maybe in the spirit of enriching our listeners, you can explain what this is all about.
1: So for years and years and years until recent times, uh, the, the team drivers or the drivers number Numbers would change each and every year. And this is just a, a more modern take on things, these personal driver's numbers, which, you know, honestly... I I really love I love the concept so I know each and every year that that the Max is thirty three, Lewis is forty four, Seb is five, and I always found it difficult in 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 the old days, you know, to make myself like a sad old man. Um, that each and every year that uh, the, the drivers' numbers would change, except for Ferrari, who always had twenty seven and twenty eight, which was uh, was a tribute to Gilles Villeneuve, who was killed at Zolder at, at the Belgian Grand Prix way back in nineteen eighty two or nineteen eighty three, and that was such a traumatic experience. Enzo and Ferrari. Himself insisted that that was something that uh, that they would always carry, and that's that's what they always did in years that they um, that they didn't uh, win the world championship. Which before the Schumacher era wa- era was was always anyhow. Um, so, but the, the the thing was that each and every year, the driver who would win the world championship would have number one on his car the year thereafter. So that would be the one thing you would know that uh, in, back in those uh, days, if Nigel Mansell won the world championship. He wouldn't have number. Five, he would be number one. If Senna won, he'd have number one. So you you just knew that, and then everything else would take you about fifteen races to get used to (laughs) before the season was over. And so I saw this, uh, you know, quote from Max uh, earlier this week, and I can understand that that maybe some people don't didn't fully appreciate it, but I I think this is a part of Formula One heritage, and I think that's something that should be revived. I think it should be uh, brought back. That if a driver does win the world championship, let them have the number one on their car and because it's the, the recognition of a very, very difficult accomplishment. And I mean, they, they can still have all the rights to their own personal number for the next season, that, uh, you know, if it's just a one-off shot that, you know, you go back to 33 or 44 or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, as very much as Michelle G says in uh, in the live chat, she says, uh, winner earns number one, you can't hate about that. And I, I totally agree. I, I'd love to see it uh, come back. Uh, and uh, if, if Max is the guy that wins it and he decides to do it, then, you know, I think that would be awesome. But, you know, it would be interesting. You know, if um, and I hadn't seen any quotes uh, from from Lewis, but uh, you know, it would be kind of cool to see it brought back. Regardless who wins the championship, either this year or next year, I think some of the things that uh, in in any sport, you know, embrace the things that work and uh, you know the the, the stuff that uh, that doesn't just let that fall by the wayside. But I think this would be a, a cool one to to br- uh, bring back. Okay, so let's take a quick uh, break. When we come back, we're going to open up the mailbag. Sounds like it's bursting at the seams. So we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. It's mailbag time. And just follow up on the previous segment. Uh, Steve Williams asking in the live chat, uh, basically saying, well, if Lewis or Max gets number one of the world champion next year, does that mean that uh, Mazepin gets number 20? <laughs> I don't get you lower. lower. Uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> ouch. All right. Mailbag time. Why don't, uh, why don't you take it away, sir? I know you've got them all prepped and ready to go.
0: I've got a few, and for those of you listening at home or even on the live stream, tonight's pod's gonna be a little bit shorter because we're actually gonna drop two pods on Friday, November yeah. the 12th. So you've got two to look forward to. So if this one seems a little bit short, just look at your stream. You'll see another one there, a very special edition in which we were joined, or we joined Tim Haraney. But got some great questions in the mailbag, and these are more general and maybe less specific about the current championship, but I think they're fair questions. Now, the first question, and I'll let you take this one first, is is from Danica, and her question is, what is it that you two do for work that's so important that you can't do the podcast full-time?
1: So I'll let you take that one away. Uh money. <laughs> at the, at this point in time the podcast doesn't pay enough to that we 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 can uh, you know walk in and uh you know hand in our notices to uh our, our respective bosses and do this uh full time which uh, you know n- not wanting to enrage my current employer or give him a uh, you know reason to to let me go. Um the less said about that uh, the, the 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 better. I mean if we could do this 5 days a week, you know Man, that would be that would be living the dream, hundred percent.
0: I completely agree. And we've we've admittedly dreamed about, hey, what could this look like if we could do this even part time, not even yeah. full time. Part if we could carve out twenty hours a week to do this show. We've talked about we would build a studio, we would have proper visualization, we would work to get credentials and travel. It's just, it's really really tough when you have a career that you require because you need to be able to pay the bills and the mortgage and. Even just having the kids, and I think we both do a good job, especially you, of being able to carve out some time late in the evenings each week, but we would love to do it. It just comes down to that delicate balancing act of family time and not compromising our careers because- that pays the bills. And again, we would love to do it. If somebody came along and made that possible, we'd certainly have the conversation. But I -hmm. think for now, we do this for fun and we do it because we get such great feedback uh, from from our listeners, whether it's in spaces or DMs. That's why we do it. And if the feedback wasn't great and the community wasn't great, we'd probably just tap out. But we have so much fun interacting with people and trying to make this community inclusive that it keeps us coming back. And, And every now and then, you know, we'll do a pod and it'll be a grind and And we just think like, hey, we're doing this because people genuinely, thousands of thousands of people download the podcast every episode and we know they enjoy it and we see the reviews. That keeps us coming back every time. Now, next question for you. So this one comes from Carmen. She says, my boyfriend is a big fan of the show, but is always too nervous to reach out. He plays the PlayStation version of F1 2021 endlessly he'd like to know but is too shy to ask do you guys play on xbox or playstation and if so if so would you be willing to play with him
1: yeah totally i i have uh, i i'm i'm sorry i'm on the playstation so uh give me a follow on twitter at mark daily f1 slide in my dms and uh, we'll connect if uh, you guys are also on playstation i think that'd be cool
0: that's fantastic. Uh, I have an Xbox. I don't have a new version of F1. I think of the last version I have is F probably 2019, but mm. I-, I commit to getting the most up-to-date version next year because I really want to see what Electronic Arts is doing with the franchise. Oh, this is a good question. So this comes from Alec. If money weren't an obstacle and you could buy any F1 team, which would it be and why? Do you want to go first? Or yeah, should I go so- first? You know, I'll take this one. I think we probably have differing answers. Hopefully we do. I think for me, if I was taking over an F1 team, I'd want it to be a project and I'd want an excuse to tear it down and rebuild it. But I would also want to buy a team that has a degree of heritage. So for me, that team would be Williams. Mm -hmm. I think this is a team that still has... Still carries a strong amount of swagger and prestige in terms of the constructors' titles it's won, the drivers' titles it's won. I think there's still a really good, great, solid community around that team. I love how embedded it is within the community at Grove. For me, it would be Williams, and I'm quite jealous of Doralton and the fact that they get to embark on this journey, and I'm excited (laughs) because I think they're going to do some good things. But if I was going to buy a team, it would be Williams, partly because I get a bit of heritage, some history, but there's also an opportunity to transform it and turn it into something. Something
1: great. Me, I I go for Ferrari. If there was money, was no object. There's just something about Ferrari, about those scarlet red cars, and the fact that nothing sounds like a Ferrari. I mean, if you see a Ferrari drive by on the street, it just it, it makes your heart beat. I mean, if, if you just think about the names, the drivers that have uh, driven for that uh, that that team, the fact that they've been there from from day one, the fact that old man Enzo Ferrari built this team up from from nothing, and this was this was a racing team that built road cars to basically finance their race team, and the, this whole legend, this mystique, this thing that has become Ferrari over the decades and the years, it's just I don't know. There, there's nothing quite. There's no one quite like Ferrari. Let's put it that way. Love them or hate them. There's there's only one Ferrari. And I think so many people with a question like this will always try to go
0: with the underdog. So I think that's very brave of you to go Mm -hmm. all in. No, Ferrari. That would be the team. Money, money not... Money aside, that, yeah, I think that's I love that's the call awesome. on great Williams, response.
1: though. Like, I mean, there, there's so many great Williams cars. I mean, there, there's a really cool uh, video. Go go search it up on YouTube. Uh, Valtteri Bottas, when he was driving for uh, Williams uh, a couple of years back, got to do a Heritage Day and got to um, take out what was an FW 14B. You know, the, the act of suspension. It was really, really cool. I think it might have been something. It, it might be a BBC video, but it was really, really cool. And I mean, you know, like you know, just like getting Valtteri's reactions, looking at the car, driving the car you know the, the whole thing was really really awesome and and just able to see that car again in all those colors the white the, the yellow the red and you know all the uh, that the camel tobacco sponsoring scrubbed off but still the you know the, the car with that renault power in it you know i was just saying nothing sounds like a ferrari but uh, you know that that's that that early 90s excuse me williams that uh, williams renault was uh, something special as well
0: uh another great question here from Jenny. A few weeks ago the two of you were talking about the results of the Formula 1 fan survey and you spent a lot of time talking about the fact that F1 didn't take a modern lens on how people qual- or how people consume Formula 1 content in 2021. How do you consume Formula 1 content today? Where do you get your news? How do you watch
1: the races? So I watch all, all the races now exclusively on F1 TV. Um, I do have TSN as part of my cable package, and the the one reason that I've gone exclusively to F1 TV is because um, you know for for me you know the the cost isn't an issue, so you know I'm I'm fortunate in that regard. But the fact is that there's no interruption during the race, and you know I can watch everything, you know not not just the fact that you get all these opportunities, you can check the different cameras, you can check the pit lane, you get all the timing, you get all the telemetry and stuff like that. I just like the fact that I can watch the race feed as intended without in- any interruptions. Now for the day-to-day um, uh, news, I follow on social media. I'll check out uh, different things like uh, YouTube on the official Formula One channel. Uh, different uh, websites are extremely uh, you know, uh, useful as well. And then you know, just connecting with other people in the media, like our, our good buddy, Tim, who always has... Uh, have some good news, uh, some interesting news to share whenever we chat offline. Yeah, I think
0: those are some really great answers. I, I, I'm i the same. As soon as the F1 TV Pro app became available in Canada, I jumped on it, not least of which, of course, was because of the fact that you don't have to contend with commercials, which is yeah. absolutely a blight on TSN's broadcast. We, we don't see it in the US. We don't see it in the UK. We don't see it in so many mm-hmm. of the countries where Formula One is broadcast today. But the app for me was a game changer, especially when, well, one, earlier this year, I was able to start... Um, Airplaying the content directly on my TV. And then uh, excitedly, a couple of weeks ago, Formula One Liberty deployed the Apple TV app, which was a game changer. So now I can watch one stream on my TV. I can watch another stream on my computer. I can watch another stream on my phone. So I'm consuming Formula One broadcasts in a way that I never imagined would be possible even two years ago. Now, in terms of getting F1 news, um, I'll be very honest. As active, I think, as our account has become on Twitter, the Mm. only thing that motivates me and keeps me going back today is because I found it's the best way to interface and learn about our community and learn about the people that support us and to have conversations with them and get a sense of what they're thinking and what they like and what they don't like about Formula One and the championship. I feel like Twitter and, in fact, Spaces especially has been really, really great for all of that. But I've had to be a little bit more careful this year with Reddit and Twitter just in terms of Mm. the messaging that's out there. This has been a very – divisive championship. And I've had to be very careful to watch my mood when I've been consuming Formula One news and updates (laughs) and fan reaction through social media. So I love Twitter. I think it's an absolutely brilliant platform. I love Spaces, I love Reddit, but I've had to distance myself a little bit this year just because the championship's been so divisive and at times very, very toxic. And I just, I don't necessarily need that in my life. It's not productive. So I'm very, very careful and very selective of which accounts I follow, and who I look to for news and updates and things like that. Whereas in the past, I could just scroll aimlessly through a feed for 20 or 30 minutes and consume nothing but bad information. So I'm a little bit more careful. I do still like Reddit, but I use Reddit principally because I like to get a sense of where the community is on certain topics. So for me, that's that's really, really important. Cool. Cool. Are you ready for another question? Let, let's hear it. Okay. Do you think, and this is a really good question as well, because we consume so much of Formula One, at least the broadcast through the lens and the scope of Sky News, but do you think a U.S. broadcaster should start doing a U.S.-based broadcast of Formula One using U.S. personalities and former U.S. drivers or motorsports drivers?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, why, why not? I mean, uh, back in the day when we had Speed TV, Speed Channel did a great job uh, with with Barb, uh, Bob Varsha as the uh, play by or the play by play as the the race commentator David Hobbs and uh, Steve Matchett. They, those guys did a wonderful job, uh, you know, uh, calling uh, the the races and uh, discussing everything about it. I mean, it, it can be done, and the, the question is, is the the, the market uh, ready for it? I would think so. You know, um, ultimately it just comes down to me who's whoever does it i just want to see them do a good job you know like are, are the people involved do they know formula one do they understand the vibe of what's going on what, what what's interesting in terms of what's happening on the track what's off the track maybe have their finger on the pulse of what's uh, you know what, what's important to the fans so I, I mean it would it would be pretty cool i, I think that uh, certainly in this day and age it could be done um the, the question is is anybody ready to step up and and, and do it right now
0: I I very much agree, and I think for me, there was some – flashes of hope during the U.S. Grand Prix when we had Danica Patrick step Mm. in and she was was fantastic. I think the challenge is, as great as she was, would she, for instance, want to sign up to do this on a full-time basis? Because if Formula One's a 25-race calendar, and it's very different than NASCAR where most of those races are a couple of hours apart by car or train or a 30-minute flight, if you're committing and signing up to Formula One, that is a grind. We are talking... (laughs) flying globally like we, just like we described earlier today you're in Cota, mexico city interlagos in sao paulo brazil and then all of a sudden you're in the middle east like it is absolutely a grind and i don't know if she in particular would, would, would uh, sign up for that if she does fantastic i would love to see it but i think we probably will see more american personalities injected into Mm -hmm. the broadcast. I think it's very unusual that even now in 2021, the bulk of the U.S. broadcasts are based off of the Sky feed. And that's not not to slag or take a shot or diminish what Sky does, because I think they do a great job. But I think the U.S. audience will ultimately evolve into a place where as more and more Americans become involved in the sport and you see more American ownership and you see more American drivers, I think the audience will mature. And I think American involvement in the sport Will mature to a point where there's a demand for it. But that said, I think the audience now is very familiar with the Sky personalities. I think they're mm-hmm. very familiar with so many of the British-based personalities because of Drive to Survive and those voices and those those individuals and those people and their perspectives are comfortable and they're familiar. But I think there'll come a time when ESPN breaks away from Sky a little bit and does does a little bit more, maybe in terms of in-studio analysis and things sure. like that. But I think it's coming.
1: Yeah, cool, cool.
0: Okay. That's uh, Those are the best ones for today. I think we'll leave it at that, unless oh. you've got any yourself.
1: No, just a couple of shout outs here to Jerry Blaney and Clive Corfield who uh, sent some uh, emails uh, into the, uh, just to uh, touch base and say hello. So thanks for, for, for checking in and thanks for all the tweets and all the questions. Thank you to everybody. In on the live chat, uh, Michelle G saying, I love listening to the British accents on Skyfeed. And I must admit, I do enjoy listening to David Croft and Martin Brundle. I think they do uh, a wonderful, wonderful job commentating the, uh, the 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 races. Anyways, right. Well, guys, thank you very much uh, for downloading, listening to the show. Enjoy the race this weekend. If you want to get in touch, by all means, do so. Follow us on Twitter at F one pod Send us an email at F one pod at gmail.com. That is it. That is a wrap enjoy the weekend enjoy the bonus show that will drop uh, later this afternoon and we will be back on sunday night to discuss the the uh, i was gonna say the british grand prix it's like i've <laughs> regressed six months of the season here anyways we will be back to recap the brazilian grand prix and until then have a great weekend and we'll talk to you guys again soon bye for now